1: Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 196 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, it's an exciting season on the podcast. I got to tell you, we got a celebration coming up for episode 200. Uh, we're making some changes this summer where occasionally you're going to get more than one episode a week. Just because, yeah, we're that far ahead. And we got a great guest today in Brian Carter. Brian is a pastor. We have a fascinating conversation about succession. And under his leadership of Concord Church in Texas, uh, they've seen a tripling in size. He is active in the community, um, passionate about racial reconciliation, and really serving his city extremely well. So you're going to love Brian Carter, or if you don't know him, You got to get to know him. He is a great guy and even nicer than he is confident. And he's extremely, extremely confident. So, yeah, he is the senior pastor of Concord Church for the last 15 years. They serve over 8,000 people. Uh, He is active all over the city of Dallas. And, uh, yeah, you're going to love our conversation with Brian Carter today. Also, um, I want to thank all of you for just being so generous in sharing this podcast. I know a lot of you discuss it with your leadership team or your staff. Um, A lot of you share it with friends and colleagues. And I want you to think about that today. Like, who is listening to an episode like this or anything actually in the other 195 that we've done that you think, you know what, they would benefit if they knew that. Would you send them, you know, copy the link and just shoot them a text or a post it on your social or whatever, because as the word gets out, we are able to help more and more leaders. And we just love the privilege of being able to do that. You guys are the people who can share that the best and the most. And I want to thank you for that. And really, hardly a day goes by. I think I can say never a day goes by where we don't hear... Uh, some great feedback from you guys. So thanks for being awesome listeners. Uh, We got something brand new for you next week that I want to tell you about that I'm very excited about. So um, like a lot of you, I have the responsibility of communicating pretty much every week. Uh, I'm speaking somewhere. So unless I'm on vacation, I'm speaking at our church. I'm speaking at a conference uh, in North America or somewhere around the world. Um, You know, and really, communication is, is the art of putting a talk together. And so next week, we launch a brand new resource called The Art of Better Preaching. It's a course that Mark Clark and I have put together. Mark is the founding and lead pastor of Village Church. I'm the founding pastor of Connexus Church. I'm also the teaching pastor there these days. And uh, between the two of us, we speak to six, 7,000 people every weekend, most of whom are unchurched because Mark and I both serve in very post-Christian cultures. And uh, in this course, we kind of cover the gamut. We talk about message prep, Uh, We share our secrets. I talk about how to, well, I actually don't talk about, I show you the strategy that you can use for giving a talk without using notes. You can talk for half an hour, 40 minutes, an hour, without ever having to look at your notes. I show you how to write a killer bottom line. We walk through the theology of preaching, the what and the how, how to isolate the power in the text, how to connect with your audience, how to structure your talk. And we talk about some of the uh, soft issues too. Like we talk about, you know, how do you stay fresh in the long haul? How do you develop your own voice? And then we even bust some myths about preaching. So I'm really excited about this course. It's very comprehensive. You can get in on the wait list so you don't miss a thing during launch week. Head on over to theartofbetterpreaching.com and join the wait list because uh, it launches next week. So very excited to get that into your hands. And uh, of course, everything's in the show notes as well. But go to the theartofbetterpreaching.com, and you will find everything there. Uh, that launches next week, and Mark is going to be my guest, and we're actually going to spill some of the secret sauce for you next week on the podcast, so I'm pumped for that. In the meantime, let's get right into my conversation with Brian Carter from Concord Church in Dallas, Texas. Well, it's a real joy to have Brian Carter with me today. Brian, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much, Jared. Honored to be here.
1: Hey, it is uh, it is great to have you. And I would love for, um, you know, I know a lot of leaders know you, follow you, uh, but for those who may not, give us a little bit of a background on how you got into ministry, what you do. I mean, that could take an hour in and of itself because you do so many things, which is one of the things I want to talk to you about. So uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into ministry and what you're doing these days.
2: You know, I, uh, I got into ministry because my following my father. My father was a church planter. And uh, around 10 years of age, he planted a church. And I kind of just fell in love with the work of the local church. I Mm -hmm. fell in love with my relationship with the Lord. And uh, it was just my faith was important to me. And so he planted churches and kind of remodeled buildings. He would take old buildings, remodel them. So I grew up in a church, small church, where you had to do everything, where you were driving (laughs) the bus, you were uh, in teaching Sunday school, leading the choir, all hands on. That's kind of how I grew up. And so as I matured, I then looked for careers. And so every pastor I knew was bi-vocational. I decided I'd be a teacher. And so I went to school uh, Oklahoma State to be a math and science teacher. And then I would do pastoring together. I figured it all would fit together. And so I pursued that. And then uh, ultimately would uh, relocate to the Dallas area. And uh, taught school for two years uh, before offered uh, the opportunity to join a church staff over their discipleship ministry, and uh, did that for two years. And then uh, two years later, the senior pastor asked me to be his assistant pastor and successor. And then a year later, became the senior pastor. And that was uh, nearly 15 years ago. And so that's kind of the, the short.
1: And here birth. you are. <laughs> here I am. <laughs> uh, just curious, because we get this question a lot around here, but you said that all the pastors you knew when you were a kid growing up in the church were bivocational. Uh, just curious, why is that? Was that choice? Was that tiny churches? What what was that?
2: I think primarily just the size of the churches, just, mm. just smaller churches. And so the churches couldn't afford uh, for a full-time pastor. And so that was my ministry model and the plan I had planned to pursue.
1: Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's coming back now as as uh, a church planning strategy as well. Our approach in mainline world where I grew up was uh, very few bivocational, uh, but you would try to staple two, three, four, five churches together, and sure, you do the circuit, sure. yeah, so they would right. all pool their ten bucks, and you know you right, get a paycheck right. at the end of the day, and <laughs> exactly. uh, different approaches to that. Okay. It is. Um, it is. Now, under your leadership, Concord Church, where you serve in Dallas, it's tripled in size, and you took over uh, from Dr. E.K. Bailey, which which is interesting. I really believe, Brian, um, that succession is going to be one of the top stories in the church, but also in businesses, actually, just demographically, over the next decade, uh, because there's a lot of guys in their 50s, 60s, 70s who know it's time, maybe it's been time for a little while, for them to to hand over the reins. Um I, I would love to know in your transition under Dr. Bailey, what went well? Uh, let's start there.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, and so my predecessor founded the church. He started it mm-hmm. in the mid-70s. Uh, he led it for 28 years. And part of uh, his vision was always to, um, to have a succession plan. That was always his vision. Right. As a matter of fact, I joined the staff. We had our first eldest retreat. He was 55 years old and he told the church, I want to retire at 65 and I want to bring on someone now to start this process uh, over time. He got the vision from his his mentor that had done something similar because he just felt too many churches waited too late. They would wait too late by the time they brought in the next guy and the next guy would have to resurrect the church from the dead. Uh, And it just made it incredibly (laughs)
1: difficult. So he That's really well said. (laughs) That's really well said. That's so accurate, Brian. (laughs) That's so true. So
2: so he felt like there ought to be this smooth transition uh, where you really can go from peak to peak and not have to deal with so much of that that, that decline. And so at 55, he had a vision. He said, I want to do this. And um, he hadn't started the process yet. And he became ill. He became ill with cancer. And uh, as he became ill with cancer, it kind of now expedited this succession plan. And so um, he he did this search and began to think about what he's looking for, identified these 25 qualities in a guy, and originally looked for someone that uh, was more mature in ministry, more experienced than myself. Uh, but that gentleman decided to stay at his church. And then he came to me and said, hey, listen, you're my plan B. Uh, you're young, but I, but I see some of the intangibles in you. And at the same time, he had been discipling me along with another group of ministers, uh, preparing us for leadership. And so it was really that discipleship process that really connected our hearts and helped him to see in me some of the, the, the qualities that he thought he could develop within me over time. Um, and so he, he identifies these qualities. He goes to the elders. He then calls a church meeting, and the church uh, gathers, and they begin to. He begins to roll out his plan. That I'm calling him to be my assistant pastor as well as my successor, and uh, the church votes on it, and then we begin this shared leadership process. Now, mind you, he's talked about succession throughout his tenure. It wasn't a new deal. It's just now that he was in this season, he just wanted to expedite this process and plan, and so that's kind of how. Things begin to materialize for us. I preach one service. He preached the other service. We're sharing leadership. And then, unexpectedly, God would call him home a year into the process. A year into the process, he passes away. I'm now 29, trying to lead uh, this church that he has been leading for 28 years. And so just a lot of different dynamics in that process. Uh, But that was kind of the initial stage. So I think one part of the process is how the successor handles it, you know, how they approach it, how they approach the selection, how they work with the church, what kind of vision they've created for this kind of role. I think that's one part that, that has all of its own unique dynamics, along with the predecessor, how they handle it as they come into the position. And so we can talk about that if you want for a little
1: while. Yeah, I do. I want to ask you an, an intermediate question. You said that he told you you were his plan B. <laughs> yeah. that, that's what every leader longs <laughs> to hear. Hey, Carrie, you're my plan B, man. Didn't work out the way I hoped. Uh, how did you handle that as a young leader? Like that, that would have been a deal breaker for some people, right? <laughs> you know,
2: um, I think that Part of my life story has been one that has been kind of overlooked. You know, I mean, everybody's life story has its own different uh, markers. And I think part of my marker in my life has been kind of an unassuming, uh, kind of overlooked. And that's okay. You know, I think it's okay to kind of uh, take life as it comes to you. And, and here's the reality of it. I didn't meet the qualifications. I was too young, didn't have the seminary training, didn't have the education. So I didn't meet many of the qualifications that were there. But I think as a leader, when you're making selections in leadership, I think you have to have your list, but I think you also have to be open to your gut, your intuition, to the spirit about certain things. I think that's the tension that every leader faces. When I'm trying to find someone, I have this list, <laughs> but I also know my heart may be leaning in a different direction. I think it's so important for a leader to manage through uh, those tensions well. And I think he just kind of dealt with that tension in that way, and uh, and I'm I'll, he selected me ultimately.
1: I can relate to that. I came to the place where I still am all these years later, 23 years ago, and uh, they selected me by one vote. So hardly a ringing endorsement of, of confidence in my leadership, but here we are all these... Here All these are. years later. How, how, right. how large was the church in terms of attendance when you took it over, when you were tapped on the shoulder?
2: Our, our Sunday attendance at that point was
1: around 2,000. And you had never been part of a church that size before?
2: Never been a part of a church that size. I grew up in Oklahoma City, probably smaller churches at that time, and so just hadn't been exposed to mega church staffing fairly new to me. Although I was on staff at the church now for two years before he called me to this position, um, it still was a fairly new experience in many ways.
1: What was the hardest thing for you to figure out? I mean, you know, sometimes I joke that we're all at our church, we're all part of the biggest church we've ever been a part of. Like you're you're right. figuring it out as you go along, which is, right. which is true right. for a lot of leaders. I mean, it's not like, right. yeah, I grew up in this church of 100,000. Now I'm leading one of 10,000. I mean, most of us, we right. grew up in small churches and now, boom, here we are. We're trying to figure it out. So walk us through that.
2: So there's so many lessons that I'm learning in this experience. I mean, I think I think everything from taking time to grieve as a church. I mean, mm-hmm. I think whenever there's a transition, there has to be a time for the people, for the leadership to just begin to grieve. And so I remember going through a season where I'm allowing them to sort through their feelings and emotions. And then you have a season where you're learning to honor the past, you know, where we're recognizing, remembering that, speaking well of that, taking care of his wife, you know, all these things of just trying to make sure that I'm still honoring that past uh well, honoring that foundation. Then there's a season where now I'm trying to shape my vision and I'm trying to figure out, okay, we've got a good foundation, but what does this look like for me? I understand his calling, the distinction of the church, but how does that fit for who I am, for where the city is, the church is, and what I envision? So you're sorting through vision stuff. You're you're, you're trying to navigate all of these different groups as, you're reach, as you want to maintain that group that's been there, that, that, that foundation. But then you're trying to make the shift to reach all these new people. And so uh, all of those are lessons I'm trying to learn. Then I'm seeking wise counsel. I think one of the keys is when you're leading in a space that's unfamiliar to you, is to find people. That are in that space so i'm going to conferences i'm reading books i'm finding people, i'm getting mentored i'm constantly trying to absorb counsel that i need to be able to manage through a church of this size as we deal with all of these growing pains and things that come along with that
1: how did you manage grief i imagine if if i understood what you said properly there was probably sure. a double grief. There was the grief of, he's not our leader anymore, and now there's this new guy, and it's not the way it was. But then the profound grief of losing their founding pastor, like, sure. you know, his death. How did sure. how did you lead them through that, through both, both of those?
2: So I, I did a four-part series on grief. I tried to make it a safe space where we could come and talk if you wanted to talk. Uh, I tried to use the scriptures. As a model, Deuteronomy thirty-four and eight talks about these thirty days of grief when Moses is no longer the leader. Uh, we kept his, we gave him a title, a different title. I just try to find ways to help them know that I'm with you, I sense you, and we're, we're going to make it through it. And I and I think that happens in either case, even if the predecessor still didn't die, but still has transitioned. Mm-hmm. I think that grief is part of the process because. You've got two different leadership styles that are taking place. And sometimes people that are resistant to change is not that it's just it's that it's you personally. Sometimes it's the grief they're trying to work through and walk through as they navigate through this transition well.
1: How did you know that at age twenty nine? I
2: don't know. I, don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's I that's I have pretty no amazing, idea. Brian.
1: Like I have no idea. Really, was that like a mentor or just your gut, your intuition said that is that's wisdom beyond have, your ears.
2: Uh, I have no idea. Someone may have mentioned it to me, or I when I was coming in, part of the model for our ministry was the Moses and Joshua. And yeah. so it was really studying this transition in scripture between Moses and Joshua and kind of watching that, it really became kind of a prototype for us to figure out, okay. This is, a, this is a biblical model, and so let's try to apply that in our context. And so I think part of it was just trying to apply that in our particular context.
1: Mm. What went well in your first couple of years?
2: So I think um, it's crazy, but because um, because so many because church transitions happen so poorly, and because the, his, historically uh, the, that it just doesn't work, it almost felt like it pushed the church together. You got this young pastor, no one thinks you're going to make it. You know, it, 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 it's almost like one of those against the odds kind of situations. <laughs> they're where They're there to you know,
1: watch but, the train wreck. <laughs> right, right,
2: right. <laughs> yeah. so it's like, you know, so, so to some extent the church was incredibly mature. I mean, the church was incredibly supportive to me it was almost as though I'm pastoring my parents. And so he had really put in a really strong DNA in the church where they were almost supportive and protective to help me through. And so from what went well, on one side, you have a church that really did rally around me. And I'm incredibly grateful for that Um, uh, because they really were supportive of me, really were uh, from an overall... And then there were those that were... (laughs) There were those that didn't think I was qualified, all that too. But I think in terms of what went well was, that was part of the church. The other part of it was that he had discipled me. I mean, he spent a year with me on Sunday mornings, Saturday mornings, talking to me about manhood and leadership and talking about how to transition to church. And so that year of discipleship process really allowed me to almost have a, a, a game plan for how to now live in the season that I am in management. So that went very well. Um, And then uh, we have something called term limits in our church. And so what Mm -hmm. it does is it creates succession throughout the life of the church. And so succession wasn't just in the senior pastor position, it's part of the culture. And so whether you're over the ushers or whether you're over the deacons, everyone has succession. So it's almost like that helped us. To really begin to apply it well, and so you have this church that's coming together. We have this discipleship process that's helped me prepare. I'm getting advice from different leaders. All this is helping me to kind of navigate through this in this early years. And so those are the things that went very, very well uh, in those early in that early season.
1: We've had uh, Cheryl Batchelder, uh, former CEO of Popeyes Louisiana Kitchen, on this. Uh show. Great interview. And one of the challenges she faced was she had all these franchisees that were not very excited about yet another CEO. And she had to sure. win them over. And she tells an amazing story about how she did that. I imagine that's kind of what you were facing. You had all these people that he had built literally almost three decades of loyalty sure. around, the only leader sure. they'd ever known. Um, sure. You come along. I know that's a challenge because I talk to leaders every day that so many leaders face, whether they are in a succession plan or they're just next. It's like, you know, every sure. five, eight years we get a new pastor. I'm the new one. Right. How, how, how did you handle that? What were some keys that helped you align with that group that had only known him?
2: Iron, the past, respecting his legacy, I think helped give me some credibility with them. Yeah. Um, I think even knowing that he was involved in the selection process helped give me some credibility with them. So now they're watching me to see, okay, what's there? And so uh, one of the things I think every leader has to embrace when they come into a new role is this whole role of one, being patient, taking your time in terms of vision and execution, but also loving the people. Building those relationships, spending time with them, getting to know the key influencers, seeking their inputs with these decisions. So, these are things I'm trying to do as I try to win them over. And so, you really have this balance of trying to win over uh, this group that's there. But then, there's also at the same time, we're trying to reach this next generation. When I came in, our church was really going through a transition generationally. We had, Mm -hmm. it was really trying to now reach Generation X. This is twenty, almost 20 years ago, and you're now yeah. you're trying to figure out how the church reached Gen X. And so we had just um, gone into two worship services. We had a traditional for those over 40. We had a contemporary for those under 40. And the 8 o'clock crowd was doing great. But the 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 under 40 was struggling. When I come in, that's my crowd. So the crowd that we grow with is the crowd that's my generation now. And so it's, it's mm-hmm. really a unique dynamic as I'm loving and connecting and building relationships with and affirming this foundational group, while I'm also now chasing after my generation to say, hey, let's go, uh, let's get serious about our faith, trying to reach them creatively. And so it's this great dynamic of there of building these bridges to who they are, but also now reaching this next generation well.
1: Did you end up fusing those services at any point, the, the Gen X and the traditional
2: ultimately we did it's a great question ultimately uh <laughs> probably the last four to five years they've all merged and it's all the same um
1: that took that over time, a decade to merge it, it, did, it did. you know it th- did. there's a ton of church leaders listening right now who you know in whatever way it, it incarnates in their church they've got a traditional and a more contemporary and it's just talk about that speak into that space
2: you know, I think at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is reach people where they are. And I, and I think yeah. the tension is in this consumer mindset that many of our uh, followers, many of our, many of our members carry, it makes it very difficult upon us to try to figure out how do I connect with each of those groups. But I think what I'm finding now is that I, I do think we need to be aware of that particular audience and crowd, but I don't think we have to tie ourselves to, so much to it as well. I think I've seen it merge. That doesn't mean our services don't have a distinction, but I do think that it's, uh, I, we don't try to um, over, we don't try to focus so much on just trying to identify and meet the needs of one particular group.
1: Right. Did you have people leave when you kind of four or five years ago made the transition?
2: We 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 not so much. It's been pretty. The people we had leave was early on when I first got there. I mean, we had a lot of people that left and uh, weren't really connected with where we were trying to go. Um, And I remember the young preacher trying to chase them down and try to say, "Hey, stay, stay." But then a, a more senior preacher said, "Listen, that's that's a blessing. When they leave, that was a, <laughs> that was a good thing." sorry. <laughs> <That's laughs> <All right. great. laughs> so. So I've learned to trust God in that
1: process. Yeah, yeah. When you were blending the services, because we we haven't had too many of those conversations here. What did you do in the traditional service? Like, if you're thinking of you know a shower or bath water, did you gradually turn up the heat a little bit until it felt more and more like the other service, (laughs) or uh, how did how did you? What were the mechanics of that transition?
2: Basically, pretty much like you like you've mentioned. um, You just with time. We just begin to, um, we begin, what what happened was as we began to do more things in the contemporary services, you had the traditional crowd saying, Hey, we want that. What, what, how come you didn't do that here? How come we, and so over time (laughs) you almost create this experience where that's what they wanted. You know, they had a desire uh, to have that creative experience or that dramatic piece. And so we just kind of over time, just kind of gotten to a place where people feel comfortable uh, with where we are. It doesn't mean that we don't occasionally try to do something more traditional or something uh, more contemporary, but it means we try to strike a balance as best we can.
1: Back into the transition, what's one thing or two things that you didn't do well that you wish you could redo if you had the opportunity?
2: You know, probably the the, the biggest challenge that we had um, is is really with staffing. Um, You know, um, we were all around the same age. um, And so it was just difficult to figure out where do I fit, okay? If I I go from being a volunteer to a staff member to now a senior pastor, and I still got the same group that's there, same group of friends, your relationships change, now you're the boss. So those dynamics kind of hit rock bottom probably a year into everything and uh probably lost three or four key staff pastors in the same month oh, some yeah. churches one plant of church not too far from us i mean just just this whole tension of okay so that was probably one of the most difficult parts of it um was what's just you know i don't and i don't know how a leader prepares for that i don't know if when a new leader comes in, he gets to select who. I, I don't know how you. What's the appropriate mix? But I do know that that staffing issue uh, can be incredibly hard on that on that succession that that succession process because their loyalties are not to the the new guy, and so yeah. managing through that I think is is very very complicated. But that was my biggest one. I mean that that was the the biggest challenge. And the other challenge really was, and it's the challenge for every leader. is just finding my voice. You know, Mm -hmm. I think as a leader, you you have to find your voice and it takes time. You know, you come in, you know, I was the direct opposite of my predecessor. Now our values were the same, but our styles were quite a contrast. Um, And so me trying as a leader, trying to figure out, okay, how do I lead? What's my style of preaching and teaching? How do I manage through conflict, opposed to how he managed through conflict? So all of this I'm trying to work through um, was uh, was a real tension, you know. And I watched myself evolve over time, but those are those are difficulties because um, you know people expect you to be a certain way, but that may not be your style, may not be your approach, and I had to get comfortable in that.
1: Uh, well, I do think succession is the next uh, issue that the church is going to be grappling with for a decade or so. If you could give one or two pieces of advice to leaders who are facing that, maybe start with the people who are in the place of your predecessor, those who are handing things off, give them one or two pieces of advice, and then one or two pieces of advice for those who will be stepping into that role.
2: So, you know, this is the senior leader. I would say, to tell that senior to build a ministry with purpose over personality. So, so, so mm. I think it's crucial that that senior leader makes makes sure or does the work to set the ministry or organization up so that its values and its goals and its plan and its strategy is not built just on the person or the personality, but really built on purpose on the on the bigger image and goal of the work. And it can happen, so so that's one thing. Just build it around that. I would also say for that senior leader, try to find ways to implement succession throughout the life of the organization. I just think that when it's part of the overall life, we have uh, term limits on even our elders. And so I think when it's throughout the life of the organization, it, it 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 helps immensely. And then the other thing I would say is just prepare your family for transition. Um, oh, that's a good word. because it's not just the senior leader, but when you when your family also has to be prepared. So your wife and kid, everyone needs to be kind of prepared for that. And then the last thing I would say is this: as a senior leader, you know, try to. All of us have to learn to hold our roles loosely, so that yeah. our so that our identity is not connected to the role. I think mm-hmm. a great tension for many pastors is that when they think about leaving or or transitioning. All they know is that role and their identity really? is wrapped up in that position. And so it creates stress on them, their family, and everyone in the whole process. So so, no, so that's, that's for good. The
1: what about for someone in your role? What would you say to the person taking over?
2: So for the person taking over, I would, um, I would say be gracious to the senior leader. I would say be gracious, uh, be humble, be respectable, because... They invested so much. Uh, it's a life work. And so that involves that whole honoring process that involves that whole uh, just honoring that foundation. Uh, I would say to that new leader, I'd say be patient. Uh, sometimes as a new leader, you come in, you got all these great ideas and you're ready to you I'll fix that and fix that. <laughs> I would say be very patient. It takes five to seven years to become the pastor. And so be patient, build relationships, and with time, God will allow that to happen. And I would even say to them, um, you know, assess the culture, you know, assess and build on the culture that's there. Um, I think it's important not just to come with your own ideas, but to really use that early season to sense um, what God is doing in that church, what God is doing in you, what God has done, and then where does it go from
1: here? That's good advice. Good advice. So over the last 15 years, Concord Church has grown. It's tripled in size. What things have you done that have helped you reach new people?
2: I I think several things we've been able to uh, try to apply in our context. I think one is just being very intentional and strategic. And so every year we have a leadership retreat. We have a strategic planning retreat. And we're trying to look. Okay, what's what's on the what? What are we trying to accomplish in the next two, three, four, five years? And so I think having this kind of annual time and really trying to be vision driven and mission driven, I think has been essential to us. And So I think that's one of the things that's helped us. We also are a very small group driven church. I think um, mm. our goal is to get about half of our Sunday attendance in small groups. Oh yeah. Um, And so we're we're constantly pushing people and trying to tweak our model and trying to expand that model. And so small groups has been a really, really big part of uh, of our of our of our model. And then men's ministry. Uh, men's ministry, you know, after my senior pastor discipled me for a year-long process, I did the same thing. He did that for his 20 years at our 20 or so years at our church. I did it. I figured if it worked for him, let me try. So I started discipling some men in my church, mm-hmm. and uh, matter of fact, it grew. And so we ended up having about three to four hundred men uh, in men's Bible study every every week, and uh, and so it's really become a part of our DNA uh, that we cultivate, develop men because we realize how important they are uh, to our families and to our culture, and that's really been a big part of our of our church. Um, and then creativity. I mean, we just try to do a lot of creative things, whatever, whether it's in our worship experience or whether it's in the community or whether it's with our conferences. Um, every three years we do this thing called a mass wedding where we marry couples that are living together. And so we hmm. do this series and we, we give them a free wedding. And we just we're just trying to find ways outside the box to try to uh try to uh, encourage people to live out God's plan for their lives. And then the last piece is really leadership and authenticity. So just trying to be as authentic as we can and just trying to develop leaders in the life of our church. So those are some of the things we've done uh, to reach people uh, in the life of our church.
1: What's been the biggest challenge for you personally as a leader as your church has gone from a couple thousand to like, what is it, 6,000 or so today? I mean...
2: Yeah, we see about 6,000 every Sunday. Um, wow. The biggest, man, the biggest uh, challenge, oof, the biggest challenge, biggest challenge, you know, growing with every season. You know, as a leader, every season is different.
1: Never you ends, know? does it?
2: Uh, and it never ends. <laughs> <is>, there's <laughs> no place where I can put it on autopilot and say, I've got it. This is the formula. I've arrived. My team is perfect. Our strategy is perfect. I just, every season is so different, every milestone, every mark. And so the biggest challenge for me is trying to figure out what's needed in that season, you know, um, uh, what's needed of me as a leader, how am I evolving, how is my staff team evolving, how is my church evolving? I mean, and so for me, it's just figuring out, okay, what are the adjustments I need to make so we can continue to reach people well? Uh, and then you have this whole tension where if you're not careful you can be so vision and strategic driven that you almost are not treating people with the care that they need you know what i mean and so you gotta balance make sure that it's about developing people and so you know it's just uh, because it it becomes a machine after a while if you're not careful
1: how do you manage that tension because i think that's a really good insight brian like I think you can be so strategic and that can be my leaning that I'm so strategic I forget the people part. And then there are other people who are so people oriented, so pastoral that they they don't ever want to challenge anybody and so as a result they're completely unstrategic and the mission doesn't move forward. What does that look like in your life? Like how do you how do you manage that tension?
2: That's a, that's a, that's that's a great question. You know, I, I think that is the the tension of how do you manage both of those. And so I find myself kind of going back and forth at times. I think there have been seasons in my leadership where I was um, very people driven, very engaged, the way I needed to be. And there were other seasons where I was just trying to climb the mountain, trying to accomplish the goal. You know, you're in a building campaign or you're in a capital campaign. We got to conquer this. And I think what I've learned is try to put some rhythms in in the flow of your leadership so that you protect yourself from either end. And so I have a a, a group, I have a leadership team of, of mine that I meet with every week. And we intentionally try to use that meeting for, for development. Okay. What are we reading, podcast, listening to? And so I'm trying to develop, I'm trying to make sure. That our meetings are not just strategic evaluation, what's next analysis, but but I'm making sure there is that kind of time. Then I'm also thinking too about how do we connect relationally. All right, how do right. we? What kind of debt da- are we going to have? What can we do to, for fun? What can we do just to hang out? So you're trying to because you you forget what happens is if you're not careful like me, there's tension where I I sometimes forget that those times of fellowship and camaraderie and shared experiences they're just as important as that meeting where you had the whiteboard out and you were planning everything. And so trying to constantly talk about that and trying to find balance in our team uh, has been an ongoing challenge for us.
1: Actually, that's a pretty good microcosm. You're right. Because if you're not doing that with the four to six leaders that you're with most of the time, you're probably not going to do that with the church, right? So if... If if it's not all whiteboards, you know. On the other hand, if it's always going for pizza, your church probably isn't moving the dial <laughs> very right. very forward. Um, so no, that that's a good answer. That's a that's a that's a really helpful way to think about it. Look at how you're treating that inner circle. Is it all strategic or is it all relational? And then how do you do both? I think because I right. think that is one of the ingredients to successful leadership is. Uh, you end up in the middle somewhere on that where you're strategic and relational. It's not strategic right. or relational. Um, community right. engagement right. is really close to your heart. That's something that you and Concord Church do. What do you mean by that, and what are you doing to engage the community, Brian?
2: So we, we, we believe we're in the city for the city. We, we just believe that God has called us to be salt of the world salt of the earth and light of the world and so we believe it's incredibly important uh to be connected with the community and we almost feel as though that community engagement is one of the apologetics for reaching this next generation that they want to see a church that's engaged serving and connected uh to the community so we have probably about five key areas that we try to work in a partner with. one is education so whether that's adopting a school whether that's working with our local school district, whether that's backpacks and giving away school supplies. It's a it's a year-long process of us collaborating with our local schools or local school districts as a partner. We want them to know we're a partner for you. We want to yeah. help you, resource you in any way that we can. Economic development is another issue that we partner with. Dallas has the fourth highest poverty rate in the country. Wow. And so you have this city that has great, great wealth, but also great, great poverty. And so we kind of sit in that space. We have a food pantry. uh, We offer free counseling. uh, We do job training. So it's all about this. uh, We want to be a resource, advocating for those things in our community. The other area is uh, uh, criminal justice. And so uh, whether that's police and law enforcement, whether that's going into prison ministry, it's us feeling like prison ministry is a crucial area of mass incarceration are just big areas for us. And then the other two are racial reconciliation and then African-American males. Um, uh, Young men of color deal with so many dynamics in the community and in life. And so it's so important that we find ways to strengthen them and support them and mentor them to understand their purpose in life. So those are kind of the five key areas that we engage in in our city.
1: So with respect to African-American men, is that part of your like mentorship and your men's Bible study? Uh, to, I've, I've, ha- I've spent some time with African-American pastors, not so much in Dallas, but in the Ohio, sort of that Midwest area. And sure. I am, as a Canadian, you know, guy who lives in, in, a, in a different country, somewhat familiar with the issues, but talk to us about them. What are the issues with African-American males as you experience them in Dallas?
2: So, you know, um, if you, the national, the whole dynamic of racial injustice yeah. has really impacted our nation in so many ways. It's, it's really created a, a narrative that's, that's put African-American men uh, in a very difficult position. I mean, some studies show, show that one in three at some point in their lives may be incarcerated. Uh, when you look at the test scores in most school districts, African-American boys are at the bottom of that rank. We make up the highest population of those incarcerated. We make up the lowest uh, amount of those that are graduating from college. In any other case, it would be an epidemic when you begin to look at mm. statistics and really the state of the African-American man. I mean, there are those that are doing well, but the greater majority have so many obstacles that they're facing uh, you've got seventy percent of children grow up in African American family without a father in the home. And yeah. So you got all these different dynamics that are there, and so we feel like the church has to really speak into this space. And so we do mentoring. We 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 do a lot of stuff on fatherhood to help young men to understand what it means to be a father. Uh, we do a lot of things on on what a, what it means to be a man. I mean, a lot of People don't understand what it means to be a man, don't understand the responsibilities, the expectations. We we define manhood or masculinity by the wrong framework or scorecard. So our goal is to really cultivate a healthy place where we embrace authentic manhood, such the case that we can reclaim our communities. We have dads clubs and schools so we're doing a variety of engagement activities to try to model it to try to teach it to try to partner as well as uh raise up a next generation that understands a healthy view of biblical masculinity
1: what kind of response are you getting to those initiatives from african-american men
2: and it's like um you know it's uh it's really magnetic i mean it's hmm the work we do in our church, we we encourage men to when we when we pour into them and help them to understand what it means to be a man, our expectation is that you would then go and invest in someone else's life as a mentor or go partner with a local school. And many times when we go to a local school and begin this partnership, the administration is excited that we <laughs> that we've showed up. I mean they they they're waiting on someone to step in and really help with young men in the community. So uh, it's been embraced incredibly, the various things we've done uh, because it's such a gap and it's such a community that's overlooked uh, that really needs these kinds of initiatives and programming to help uh, change the gap and help change the the narrative that's been so negative for so long.
1: I hope this is an okay question because it comes from a different context. Sometimes, as a Canadian, I look in at, I agree, there's a racial divide. There's, there's, it's, but it's, it's like another world from where I sit north of Toronto. And I have a hard time. I guess understanding how deep the divisions are, is that something that has to come from an African-American leader like yourself? Or is that something um, that a multiracial or even more Caucasian or white pastor could do? Or is that something that you kind of have to lead as an African-American male yourself?
2: So in April of this year, we'll celebrate the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., And uh, it's it's a time to remember his work and his impact uh, during the civil rights movement. Uh, But one of the things that, uh, as we've been engaged in this work of racial reconciliation that we've noticed, is that when he was in the prison in Birmingham, he wrote a letter. It's called The Letter from the Birmingham Jail, which really was written to white moderates. It was written to white moderate pastors who were telling Dr. King just wait. Don't 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 bring that to our city. We we don't want to address that here. Just just leave it alone. And so I think part of the tension that we're feeling, even in today's culture, is that as important as it is an African American issue, what we are looking for now are those white Christian leaders that will really begin to stand and uh, and really respond to that letter and say, you're right. It's been too long. Let me address it. Let me talk about it. Let me stand up for you. And that's really some of the tension that's happening in America now, is that uh, for a long time it's been one-sided. It's been like me trying to plead that there's issues. But but the church has endorsed these issues and has not been proactively engaged. And now is the time where we're seeing, or we need to see more white Christian leaders saying, you know what, you're right, you're right. What we're seeing, the racial injustice that's there, the systematic racism that's there is wrong, and the church needs to have a voice in helping to address these issues.
1: So help a a white male leader like myself understand what that might look like, Brian. Okay,
2: so um, four years ago in our city, uh, when, when Ferguson is happening, Trayvon Martin is happening, Michael Brown is happening, Uh, myself and a white pastor uh, begin to have conversations about, okay, what happens when this comes to Dallas? Okay. Well, what is that? What is it? What's going to happen when that comes to Dallas? And so we begin having a conversation I said, okay, you invite five white pastors. I'll invite five black pastors. We'll sit down around the table and we'll begin to have conversations about how are you feeling about what you're watching on TV? And so for, three months or so we're sitting down having conversations about okay, what's your racial story? Do you ever preach about it? Do you ever talk about it? What do you believe the scriptures teach about it? And we're having some very candid conversations that normally we don't have. Right. You know, what are the dynamics about in our city? And so I think part of it has to happen in conversations. I, I think isolation um just breeds this framework where we don't understand each other's context. And so they, we don't understand that I get nervous when there's a police officer that pulls me over. You, my white brother, he's grateful because he's like, OK, I'm fine. But I'm, I'm nervous because of the historical record that's there. And so entering each other's worlds. And out of that, out of those conversations, uh, our churches begin to do pulpit exchanges. One of my friends speaks to his church about racism for the first time. Another friend talked this church did a series on racism for 3 weeks. Another occasion we got our men together and we had we began to teach about racism and how we can address it and how we can follow through with it. So so what I, what we began to see out of these conversations was our churches understanding more about this dynamic, not writing it off. Mm-hmm. And I think when my when my white brothers engage in the matter It changes. I can talk about it all day, but I need white brothers that are willing, and so many are, to really address the conversation and be real about kind of where we are and where we need to go.
1: Hmm. No, I'm so glad to hear you say that. What, why do you think, because it sounds so simple when you say it that way. (laughs) Why do you think it's not that simple? Why do you think there's such a resistance?
2: it's incredibly uncomfortable and i think there is mm. there are there is there are racism is a sin like any other sin yeah and because of that it exists in our churches and so when it's addressed it makes people uncomfortable um and so most pastors it's risky for them to talk about it
0: mm.
2: but it's important to do and so most pastors sometimes they don't want to talk about it because they know there's risk in it. There are people that were going to be upset. There's people that are going to think they're just uh, not giving into the, the proper narrative. But biblically, it's an issue. And so for us, the way we, we've not only talked about it, but we've also said, OK, what are three key areas that we can help address it in? We've identified education is one mm-hmm. of the key areas where you're, where often your zip code in our context dictates how successful you are in life. It dictates yeah. whether you graduate. So for us, it's engaging around education. When we, when we work, volunteer, mentor, serve at our local schools, we're, we're addressing racial injustice right there at that context. Mm. Economic empowerment. Those in minority communities have less economic opportunities. So yeah. whatever partnerships that can happen, whether it's entrepreneurship, whether it's making sure I'm more inclusive, whether it's Helping minority businesses, whether it's me mentoring a startup. I mean, it's finding ways. I have a, so that's one context. The other context is in the field of criminal justice. Our churches are opening up a legal clinic together. We're trying mm. to find ways, to figure out how do we address some of these laws, some of the issues that are ongoing. And then ultimately, search my own heart, search my own home. How am I raising my kids? And let's try to deal with some of these biases that continue to plague us. And so those are some of the things that we've been engaged in around this matter.
1: Hmm. You know, you raise it as a spiritual issue. You raise it as a practical issue. What What is a first step that somebody... Okay, because I think what you said about pastors being afraid of raising the issue, you know, people are going to leave, you're going to get angry, male maybe... Uh, people go to another church, right? Fear-based leadership. Right. Um, what is the first step they could take to like overcoming that fear? Because I think you've named it for a lot of listeners right now. Is it just calling the African American pastor across town they know, going, "Can we have coffee? Can we talk about this?" Is it like what? What is the first step? I don't know. I'm just I'm just asking.
2: No, I mean the first step really is conversation. I mean that's what we all that's what we started. I mean we, we had twenty churches that swap pulpits on a Sunday morning here in Dallas, and that didn't happen overnight. That that started with a conversation for me to trust you in my pulpit before that we before we ever yeah, got yeah. there. You know it had to start with let's sit down, let's talk. Can we be completely honest? All right. Can you tell me how you feel? Can can we trust each other in this continent? Kind of and just talk. And it's in that space where change has to start. It has to start one-on-one, small group, in a conversation. Let's talk about what's happened. Let's talk about what's being said in the media. Let's try to figure this out. Let's get beyond Fox News, CNN, and kind of figure it out. Okay, but where should I be from a Christian standpoint? How, how How should that show up in my life?
1: Yeah, I know there's a number, and I assume Concord Church is a diverse church as far as your membership goes. Is it, Brian?
2: I wish it was. We are, we reflect our community. We're predominantly black. We have some Latino and white members, but it pretty much reflects. Is that your neighborhood, the,
1: though?
2: That's my like, neighborhood. That
1: is, that is your it. part of Dallas. I guess. I mean, we're Dallas. not a particularly diverse church either. Uh, but yeah. we reflect our community, which I, th- which is I think all you can really do if you're in a, in a community. Um, you know, we're a little overly diverse for Central Ontario, but Central Ontario is not particularly diverse. Going our south, yeah. very diverse. Um, See Dallas is
2: a very segregated city. It's the yeah. north side is all white, the southern side is all black and brown. I mean, it's that's one of the reasons it's so important for us to have some of these conversations.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you say that. Now, I'm sure you know Derwin Gray or know of Derwin yeah. Gray. Um, Darren Chesky is another leader, and he's in Indianapolis. He's white, he's Caucasian. Um, both of them have are, and are committed to interracial churches, like churches where there are, there are diverse congregations. What are some keys to you to creating that kind of environment in your church, even to the extent that you're experiencing that at Concord Church, Brian?
2: You know, um, I, I think it's incredibly important. I think that's one of the reasons that church plants are so important. because I think there's there's great opportunities there um, when you start it in the very DNA. I, yeah. I think at times it can be a bit difficult um, in an existing church sometimes because there's so much of a culture that's already set. And so I think I think yeah. it ought to be welcoming. We try to be welcoming. We try to use diversity in our leadership diversity in our staff, diversity in just our approach to ministry. I think every church ought to be welcoming and connected in that space. They ought to feel like they're valued there. But we also understand too, I think that's also the importance of those multi-ethnic churches that are being planted and started from the very course and DNA. Uh, I think you need both.
1: Anything else you want to say? Uh, I mean, it's such a big issue, (laughs) I mean, and 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 very deeply rooted. Anything else uh, that you want to share on your commitment to racial unity?
2: I I think I just would encourage leaders just to to stay engaged, you know, not to Mm. not to stray away from it just because it can be an awkward conversation, uh, not to avoid it, but to find a way with grace, with empathy, to try to enter somebody else's story. Uh, I think sometimes we can watch things and immediately assume we understand all the dynamics behind it. But I think it's important uh, for leaders just to lean in on this one, Not, not to just write it off, but to lean in and try to figure out what does it mean for me and what does it mean for my organization.
1: Yeah. Well, um, you do have a passionate heart for a lot of things. And another aspect of your leadership is a love for business leaders. Talk to us about how, how you're involved with that.
2: So Dallas is really a, a business community. I mean, it has a strong uh, corporate community, strong corporate brace, a number of headquarters are are in Dallas. And so, um, part of what my part of how I view my role in the faith community is to just continue to seek to have partnerships and relationships in that space. And so, I, I serve on a, a few boards, and uh, and in the other area, just because I want to have those relationships. I think that uh, part of the role of the faith community and the pastors to help remind uh, those business and civic leaders of the role of their faith as they serve in those spaces. I mean, sometimes they disconnect the work uh, from faith. And so Mm -hmm. our role, part of our vision as a church is just to really encourage people that wherever God places you, you are on an assignment. You know, that wherever he places you in civic or in business or in the political space, that God wants to use you uh, to advance his agenda in that space. And so part of my role is just to continue to encourage people, challenge people. The other part of that is that it helps us in advocacy. We live in a part of the community where sometimes there are food deserts and we don't have healthy stores. We don't have some of the amenities on our side of town that other parts of the city do. And so those relationships allow us to advocate uh, for what our city needs and what our community needs and what our uh, parishioners need. And so that's kind of my connection for the civic and the business
1: community. Okay, so then I've got to ask you, lead a large church of 6,000 people. You're committed to social justice, to racial reconciliation, to education, to mentoring African-American males. You have a family, you uh, are committed to business. How do you get it all done? That's
2: a, that's a great question
1: is this, <laughs> is this an or something? <laughs> you do podcast interviews what are because uh, and you've scaled it I mean over the last decade and a half I mean uh-huh. it's all it's all grown and exploded so what are some rhythms patterns and habits that you've developed that help you keep your head screwed on straight Brian
2: great great question so I so I think um, part of you know I, I think, Part of how I function is I try to look at just my key roles. So first, I'm a husband and a father. I've got three uh, children. I've got a 15-year-old, 13, and a 10-year-old. And so that's that's where it starts. So just trying to make time both for my wife and my kids, both with date night and then with some family time. And then from there, my own devotional time and prayer time. And then trying to work out regularly uh, means a lot to me. Then some hobbies and then time away with my friends on a periodic basis. I mean, for me, um, you know, I think as a leader, I mean, I think you try to grow and evolve with time. I've had my own run-ins with burnout. And so I try to put in some margins. I try to put in margins to say, okay, this is what I can handle. This is how many nights away out of a month I can be away try to keep open communication with my wife about those items. And then I try to look at my year every li- I try to look at my life every year. It's okay. What do I feel God is calling me to do this year? What do I want to accomplish this year? What I need to take off my plate put on my weight way- my plate for this year. So for me it's kind of just that kind of rhythm. My my time with the Lord, my devotional time, my time reading, my time with my wife staying connected to her, my time with my family and my kids, my time with my church, my preaching, my preparation, uh, speaking, and then my time with community engagement and the national issues. So that's kind of my rhythm. So between my wife and my great partnership with her, having a great, great team that I try to collaborate with, um, you know, that, that kind of helps me find the right pace and balance. Do I get off sometimes? Without a doubt. far too often. (laughs) But, um, I don't know. I just feel a calling on my life to lead and to serve and I find great joy in it. You know, I just, uh, I just really do is I, I, you know, I I just love serving God's people. I love serving his work and, uh, it means the world to me. So I, I enjoy the journey.
1: What time do you get up in the morning? Oh, 4.30 in the morning. Oh, you and me. Oh, man. Between 4.30 and 5. So yeah, yeah, you're about yeah. ready to go to bed about now, aren't <laughs> you? Yeah. It's like 4 p.m. And I'm like, I smell a nap coming on after this is yeah, done. Yeah. yeah. Are you a napper?
2: Sometimes. I mean, I get up by yeah. 4.30, do my devotional, workout, get organized, take the kids to school. And I'm in the office by 7.30 every day. And then wow. I just cruise on and get ready for the evening with my family. So
1: what do you do I, to work like, out?
2: Man, I do a little bit of everything. So I'll do some boxing classes. I've got a trainer and I'll do uh, some training with him a couple of days. And I do soul cycle. I do the spin classes. So between oh, yeah. those three little deals, spinning and boxing and my little training, those that's how that I enjoy all three of those.
1: Mm hmm. Hey, you tap out of the office. What time in the afternoon usually on a typical?
2: Typically day? around four thirty-five. Yeah. yeah, I think around five. I'm five to six. I'm I'm wrapping it up. Yeah, and home then for the kiddos. Uh,
1: yeah, home for the kiddos, dinner with the family, and then some stretch time at night, just to relax and unwind.
2: Uh, you know, but but sometimes you know, my kids, my kids are in all kinds of activities. So we got, oh, a, yeah. I've got a basketball player, a dancer, a cheerleader. So, you know, by the time we finally unwind, it may be nine or so, and then we're we're crashing around. (laughs) Then you're crashing because 430 (laughs) comes around pretty fast, doesn't it? Coming back. Yeah, that's
1: honest. Um, if, If you look back over the last decade, what are a couple of either the rhythms or the changes you've made that have given you the most leverage? Like it's like it was at 4.30 wake up or it's nine o'clock bedtime or it's like workouts in the morning or like I got a hard stop at the end of my day. I'm I'm looking for that kind of thing. Like was there was there one or two things you did and you're like, wow, this is leverage.
2: Probably just taking better care of myself from a health Mm. perspective. I, I went through burnout probably five years ago. We were building capital campaign and tried to get some good rhythms out of that. But really, last year is when I I felt my best. I had I took a sabbatical, my first right. three month sabbatical. It wow. was amazing, and came out of that working out, eating better. Those two things really they really made me feel better. I, it was the first time I really begin to take better care of myself. After getting over forty. And it, it just made a difference for me. It
1: really does, doesn't it? You it can't does. cheat forever. Can't I found cheat. the same can't thing, <laughs> that if you take better care of yourself, you will actually produce more, which is you paradoxical. Paradoxical.
2: It is, it is, it is. It is.
1: Uh, that's good to know. Well, it's been a great time together today. Any other advice you want to give us as we, uh, we wind up today? Anything else in your mind? Anything we didn't cover?
2: I would just encourage leaders. I've been meditating on Galatians six and nine, that says, "Let us not grow weary in doing well. We'll reap a harvest if we faint not." And that that verse, I just want to encourage leaders just to to stay faithful in the work. You know, I, I'm I'm learning. There's a load. There's a weight to leadership. You know, there's a responsibility to leadership, and it gets heavy at times. I went through a season recently where it just was so heavy. But I'm just learning. That uh, more and more, I just stay faithful. I get the support around me. I, I have healthy rhythms in my life. Just stay with it. God has a way of helping us with that load in due season. So I just want to encourage leaders just to stay with it. Just stay faithful in the work. And that we'd be surprised what kind of harvest lies ahead in the work that we've been engaged in.
1: Well, Brian, that is a very, very good word. I would love uh, for you to tell us where people can find you online.
2: You can find me on Twitter at Brian L Carter. That's the best place to find. Me. I'm on Instagram as well as well as on Facebook, uh, and I'd love to connect with you too, at Brian L Carter.
1: Brian, thank you so much.
2: Thank you, my friend.
1: Man, I got to tell you, I just love Brian. He's got a great heart. He's got a sharp mind. And I just can't believe how active he is in his community. When you look at his bio and all the things that he does, it's crazy. If you want more information, uh, you can get it in the show notes. Go to kerrynewhoff.com slash episode 196. Or um, to make it easy, leadlikeneverbefore.com. Search Brian Carter. That's Brian with a Y. And uh, you'll find the show notes. So we got all the links to everything we talked about in there. Now, next week, we're coming back. It is a big week. It is launch week for the Art of Better Preaching. So Mark and I sit down. We actually did this interview in my home office right after we finished shooting the course. So it's fresh. It's real. It's raw. And we talk about the ups and downs of really having the pressure of communicating every single week. Here's an excerpt of that conversation.
0: Martin Lloyd-Jones would preach these evening services that were very, so in the morning, he had expository stuff that he would do only. But then in the evenings, it was all evangelistic. And uh, Keller used to memorize those things and uh, and preach them. And so, I mean, it's, it's the, I mean, what's the people read Spurgeon sermons and they take the content and they, you, there's no real difference between that and listening to a preacher on a podcast and then taking some ideas. So I'm not like, oh, you plagiarize you. I heard so-and-so say that. And then you said it, you're bad. Like, I don't much care about that. It's really about. Um, forcing yourself to get better by weaning yourself off the dependency. That's more yeah. about what it is. And then once you're in the groove, I just find that I think better now that I force myself to have to deal with it. So it's mm-hmm. not to say I won't go back. And if someone does a series on some book I'm preaching through, but uh, I just I just wanted to be careful.
1: So that's next week. We've also got Christine Birch coming up, Josh Gagnon, Danielle Strickland is on the podcast, Sam Collier. Uh, plus, uh, well, we have Nancy Duarte, Les McEwen, Bobby Grunwald, Max Lucado, and a whole lot more. We are, we are so excited about everything that's coming up. Oh, did I mention Andy Stanley's coming back and Patrick Lencioni and John Gordon and Rachel Cruz and Daniel Pink? Um, yeah, we, this is going to be a killer year on the podcast. I'm so, so pumped for it. If you subscribe, you get it all for free. Uh, again, thank you so much for sharing. Thanks for leaving ratings and reviews on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to your podcast. And in the meantime, we're back next week with a fresh episode. Thanks so much for listening. I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been
0: listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.